is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, profanity from politicians, the bad word that rocked D.C. this weekend, and why, if anything, it'll get people more engaged in politics. Also, a 70% tax rate? Why, it's not as scary as it sounds if you know history and understand how marginal tax rates work. And later on in the show, predictions. I'll share what I think could happen in 2019. All that and more coming up on The David Dole Show. But first, I'm joined in studio by Jimson Benenstock, the owner of Hot Black Coffee, located at 245 Queen Street West in Toronto, just a short walk from here, who, uh, despite not being required to raise his employees' wages, decided to anyway. Jim, or Jimson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So um, I've had teachers, environmentalists, journalists on this uh, program, but I've never had a, a coffee shop owner. You're the first. <laughs> well, that's a great thing. And it's because you decided to do something that I think is fantastic. And it's you decided to raise your employees' wages despite the fact that you weren't being uh, forced to by the government. So th- there was the cancellation of the $15 uh, minimum wage increase. So it's still at $14 an hour. But you decided to raise your employees' wages, um, all your employees' wa- wages, by a, a dollar. So why don't we explain why you decided to uh, do that? Well, it's twofold, really. The First of all... We made a promise to the staff when the wages went up to the minimum wages went up to 14 first of January 2018, and then it was supposed to go up to $15 an hour the first of January 2019. Mm-hmm. I made a promise to the staff, and the politics changed in the meantime. But that doesn't make my promise any less valid, and uh, I kept my word. Yeah. So, how does this benefit? your company to do this? Because there's always this discussion around, oh, small business owners can't afford to raise their wages. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll hurt their ability to, to maintain um, their staff. It, in some cases, it may even cause people to, to fire their employees. But clearly, that is not what happened in your case. So uh, why did you, or how does this actually benefit you as a company? Well, as a company and as a business owner, having better staff retention means that I have to train people and hire people less, uh, which saves me money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is that I have great motivated people, which makes for a happy working environment. And I'm in hospitality and customer service. And when I have happy, kind of fun and empathetic people, uh, that translate into a better working environment and also a better environment for the customers. And you kind of feel it when you walk in. Kind of good karma. It feels good. Yeah. People are happy. So... Uh, in terms of the the customers, so were there was there anything you had to do to um to be able to afford this increase? Did you did you raise your prices? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we worked it out. At the 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 raise was going to cost us about three and a half four points mm-hmm. uh, percent, and so I put the prices up by four percent. So a latte, for instance, which was four fifty, is now four sixty eight. Uh, so it went up, yeah, the four percent. So um, have any customers complained about this? Does it bother them at all? I don't think so. There's a few that noticed, but why? Well, we're in an inflationary environment at the moment. Mm-hmm. Just look at your rent and yeah, what exactly. happened to the house prices before. They crashed a little bit now, but yeah. it's just an inflationary environment. It just seems to be where we are. And uh, four points, it's it's not a big deal. We're not making any more money by putting the prices up. It literally pays for our increased costs. Yeah. And, and just speaking for myself, I feel if I know employees are being paid properly it makes me want to go to to that coffee shop more because i know you're treating your employees properly and to me it only makes sense uh there are so many benefits in terms of 
just in terms of the, the psychological aspect of it and how that impacts your employees and their ability to be better at their job. So do you, so you find people, um, when they, when they work at, at your coffee shop, they want to stay there because they enjoy the environment. They, they yeah, well, like they're, they're, they're staying after work, um, and come before work. We also let them have a free drink, uh, on their days off. Mm. Um, it's 50% off if they want anything, uh, you know, the, the normal stuff. We also pay breaks because I think that it's not just about money. It's about treating, treat, treating people properly. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a server, when I first arrived in Canada, whatever it was, 12, 13 years ago. We didn't get paid breaks. Um, we got unpaid breaks, so I didn't want to have a break. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended yeah. up being more tired and kind of grumpy at the end. And then, in theory, you get your break at the end of the service, but, you know, you just go home. And uh, we find that having better rested people um, makes them happier. So we were talking a bit before uh, we went, uh, went on air, and you discussed how you aren't really uh, an NDPer or maybe even a liberal. So politically, are you... you you're a conservative? How do you describe well, I'm yourself? I'm kind of on the right side. I guess you'd call me a social conservative or something, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, I actually believe that it would be better to have lower taxes than a higher minimum wage, but that's my personal opinion. And uh, this is not a political, this is not a political statement. This for me is a sound business decision. It gives me a better bottom line by having better and better paid staff. Yeah. So, it's this is something like I love talking to someone like you because you have a perspective that I don't think is really represented in in media or in our politics where you are someone who who believes in paying your employees uh, a higher wage a, a more of a living wage because you understand how the cost of things are going up so even though you are you do consider yourself a a, a conservative uh, maybe not a social conservative but a, an economic conservative you understand the benefits of raising wages and that impact on your employees. So I'm actually curious, your uh, your background. So what sort of got you into this, this business and what made you maybe realize that life can be hard for people out there if you're only making 14 bucks an hour or, you know, sometimes lower in, 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 some, uh, in some provinces? Well, uh, how did I get into it? Yeah. Uh, I first... I used to be a uh, um, management consultant and I set up sugar refineries around the world, actually. <laughs> mm. And that's what I used to do. I <laughs> quit my job to go to France and learn French. And, uh, and I did my executive MBA there and uh, got a job as a bartender when I first started off, kind of started at the bottom, worked my way up, set up a dozen different bars and restaurants for other people. And I think that the difference for me managing a restaurant slash bar environment is that we're managing more than just the bottom line. We're managing people like all the others, the other sort of business component, but we're managing uh, people on the front line and it's customer service and people being there. And the more that they are happy and content is the better that I'm able to be able to serve people better and have a better business success. Yeah. So this is, again, like, it bothers me when politicians use the defense of the small business owner as a way to keep wages low, as a way to, um, to essentially take from the poor and continue giving to the wealthy. But, like, clearly your case shows that that is not the case, that in reality – at least, you know, in my opinion, what these politicians are doing, the, many of these conservative politicians and also liberals, they are protecting the wealthiest. They are protecting the, the, the multinational corporations. These are the companies that do not want to raise their wages. These are the companies that they, they want to keep 
their share that they've had that they've enjoyed. So wages have been stagnant for years and years and years. And this is happening while the cost of housing is going up, while the cost of goods are going up, while uh, the cost of everything is going up and people are making the same wages they have always made. And it just... It impresses me, honestly, to have somebody to <laughs> well, have somebody. And and you were also talking about how this you don't think this is even really news, and you're kind no. of surprised that this I'm, is, I'm that shocked. you're getting all this attention. You know, we've had a, so we're here on News Talk 1010, but we've yeah. been on uh, well, can I name them? Oh CBC, yeah, go ahead. CBC, CP24, mm-hmm. Global, Daily Hive. I got picked up by MSN, uh, Yahoo.com. <laughs> I was on front page on the business section of the Globe and Mail. I mean, honestly, this for me is common sense. And I'm loving this publicity. Oh, of course. Okay, this is great. (laughs) And I'm super happy to spread the gospel. Um, I think that the most successful small businesses pay above minimum. My neighbors, uh, we talk about it, of course. I mean, how did you get all this publicity? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I'm doing the same. I'm paying people properly. And And I think that you'll find that the, the, the more successful small businesses are treating people better. Even if they don't necessarily have the money to pay more, they may be treated better. Yeah. And it's it's funny, almost in a, in a way, because it, almost because the wages weren't uh, raised to 15 an hour, you have now been able to enjoy this publicity, all this attention. You, I, I assume you're getting more customers in. Uh, yeah, we've had how... people coming in. I, actually, what we've had, a, an enormous increase in the amount of resumes dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> we've had people coming course, in. Shen- yes. I had an email from some barista in Iran that wants a job all of a sudden. Oh, wow. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, people. That, but the funny thing is that in, in our environment, we almost never hire because I've got such happy staff that no one leaves. Yeah. So I don't actually hire very often, and we've got a very stable staff. So much as I'd like to hire everybody, we, we just don't need the staff. Yeah. So I think you've clearly shown people the benefit of, of raising wages, of keeping employees happy. There's employee retention. Your employees are happier. They work harder. And you also, in this case, get more customers because people are more aware of your business and how you treat your employees. So I think that's fantastic. It doesn't necessarily just have to be come in because we treat our staff well. I'd like you to come in not knowing that we treat our staff well mm-hmm. and enjoy the amazing coffee, enjoy the environment, and enjoy the customer service. And that should be just natural. And it's not because we pay them well that you should come in. You should come in because it's a great service experience. There you go. Jimson Benestock is the owner of Hot Black Coffee, located at 245 Queen Street West in Toronto. Jim, uh, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Coming up next, does it bother you if a politician swears occasionally? I'll open up the phones and discuss why D.C. is melting down over a bad word. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Let's discuss something that not many people really ever discuss because it really doesn't happen too often, and that's politicians using profanity. So before I get to the first clip I'm going to show you here, I want to hear your thoughts on, do you think politicians should use profanity maybe 
All the time, maybe never, maybe in some instances. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. So the reason I'm talking about this is because over the weekend, the uh, the DC media and, you know, the elites, they all freaked out. They freaked out over a congresswoman saying this. People love you and you win. And when your son looks at you and says, Mama, look, you won. Bullies don't win. And I no. said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there. We're going to impeach them. <laughs> now, politics can be dull, but uh, <laughs> there's something incredible happening right now in in the u.s and that's there are some new congress people uh, including rashida taleb so that was rashida taleb uh, the new uh, uh, one of the new democratic congresswomen for uh, the democratic party and uh there's also alexandria Casa cortez who has not used profanity but there is some excitement now that there are some real fighters in washington there are no longer are there these you know these mealy-mouthed boring politicians these the democratic party historically for the past 30 or so years, have been very centrist, very moderate, very run-of-the-mill. Uh, I mean, people like like Nancy Pelosi, um, even Obama to a point. So Obama uh, talked a good game in, in 2008 and then ultimately reneged on a lot of his promises and did not become a was not a progressive in terms of the way he, uh, he uh, introduced policy. He was very much centrist and fell back into the typical establishment positions. But we are we are seeing real fight now like this from Rashida Tlaib, who, look, this was at a bar. This was after she was sworn in. This was with, with her friends, with her supporters. And she was just showing some real emotion and showing that, you know, she is here to to stand up for real people. Yet not only did conservatives get angry about it, but also <laughs> liberals got angry about it. So there's actually an ABC News piece calling on Rashida Tlaib to uh, apologize for uh, saying that mother effer line, which is just absolutely ridiculous when you, I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous on its own, but when, you, but when you remind yourself who the president is, it's even more ridiculous. But Fox, <laughs> Fox and Friends, Fox News, it's really funny seeing them uh, freak out about this because of how much they have protected Donald Trump. Um, Fox and Friends called uh, Tlaib's comments, quote, uncivil, end quote, which, I mean, do I really have to say anything else? Uncivil after they have spent the past two years protecting Donald Trump and everything he has said, which we will get to in a second. Uh, but there's also a Fox News anchor, Sandra Smith, Asked the White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley, quote, I just wonder what this says about decorum in this new era of divided government and the new Congress, end quote. Again, apparently forgetting that Donald Trump is the president. So what are your thoughts on politicians and profanity? Is it ever OK for a politician to swear, whether it's, uh, you know, with their supporters behind closed doors or whether it's on a podium? So give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. So I played uh, Rashida Tlaib's uh, comments calling uh, or calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump using profanity. But Donald Trump, <laughs> he also reacted to Rashida Tlaib's comments uh, saying, uh, quote, I thought her comments were disgraceful and disrespectful to the United States, which is hilarious to me considering Trump has used the exact same language in the past. Listen. We're going to knock the shit out of ISIS. 
going to knock the shit out of them. And you can tell them to go themselves. You're not going to raise that f***ing price. You understand me? Listen, you motherfuckers, we're going to tax you 25%. So that was Donald Trump uh, using the same profanity that Rashida Tlaib did. The difference here is that each one of those clips, Trump was on a stage saying that. So if you want to have a debate around uh, politicians and profanity and, and when it's okay to use it, you would probably start by saying, okay, well, sure, maybe, you know, if, if it's behind closed doors with some supporters, it's okay if, a, you know, if a bad word slips out, but you shouldn't do it on a podium. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't say it to, uh, to television cameras, but that's exactly what Trump did in each of those instances that he was using profanity. Whereas in Rashida Tlaib's case, it was behind closed doors at a bar with supporters. Now, there is a, I mean, I think there's a time and place to use profanity. I, I don't think, you know, we need uh, sailor mouth to politicians, you know, <laughs> filling up uh, our, uh, I don't know, uh, our, our television screens. But there is, in the case of Rashida Tlaib, again, behind closed doors, I don't think it's a problem. On a podium, I still don't really have a problem with it. It, it, it all depends in how often you use it, how it's used, and uh, if you are, I mean, the situation you are in. So right now, look, Donald Trump is a terrible person and a terrible president. If there is anybody you should be using profanity about, it's Donald Trump. So I really don't have, take an issue with, uh, with Rashida Tlaib using that, those, uh, those words. But I also honestly don't have much of a problem with Trump doing it. And I think that's a large part of the reason he has so much support is because he is sort of himself, um, even though <laughs> the person he is in many cases is not a good person, at least in terms of policy. But if you want to talk about somebody who is just himself, I think that's a good quality to have as a politician, somebody that is themselves, somebody that isn't fake, somebody that uh, stands for something that, uh, I mean, in in my opinion, if you stand for something as a politician, you should be standing for the, the people of your country and not the wealthy in, in corporate America, as Donald Trump does. But again, I don't have an issue with uh, profanity when it's used properly. So there is actually um, some Canadian uh, examples of this. So there was NDP. This is actually this happened last, uh, I believe, two months ago. Um, Canadian politician uh, NDP MP Romeo Saganash said Trudeau doesn't give a F about indigenous rights. And he got a ton of media attention for that. And it brought attention to the issue of indigenous rights. So this was a case where he said this in the House of Commons. I think it was great. It, this is somebody that was able to raise the issue of indigenous rights. And he did it by using profanity because profanity, again, it gets attention, which to me is still kind of weird considering we're all adults but the reason it gets this attention is because we're not just used to seeing politicians swear like that so when you see a politician and they clearly do care about an issue and i don't think romeo saganash uh just used uh that word as a way to um to just get attention for himself i do think he he really was angry about the issue and angry about the fact that trudeau has in many ways ignored indigenous rights but it's important to to remind yourself that the politicians are people too, and occasionally a bad word's going to slip out. And speaking of uh, Trudeau, actually, Trudeau is also another politician who in the past also used profanity, believe it or not. <laughs> so back in 2011, 
he called the environment minister, Peter Kent, a quote-unquote piece of crap. He didn't say crap, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, that was when he was coming to the defense of NDP MP Megan Leslie for uh, shouting the insult because Kent had criticized Leslie for not attending a UN climate change conference, even though it was the minister himself, Peter Kent, who prevented her from going. So this is actually Justin Trudeau defending an NDP MP back in 2011 using profanity. Now, this was the Justin Trudeau that I liked. The new Justin Trudeau, I think, is too staged. He comes off very phony, very rehearsed. And a, a lot of people, regardless of their thoughts on, on actual on, on policy, a lot of people do not like Trudeau because of that. Trudeau is, does not seem like a real person. He seems like a robot. And you know what? I don't think I'd, I wouldn't mind if the, if the PM dropped, uh, I don't know, the F word uh, uh, every now and then. It's not something that you, again, want to overuse. But in the right case, especially if you're talking about serious issues where, say, the Conservative Party is uh, maybe pushing back against, I don't know, raising wages for, for, uh, for people, that's a case where you can be angry. You can show emotion. You can show that you actually care for real people. And in those cases, I think profanity can be used and can be used successfully. Coming up next, a 70% tax rate, why it's not as scary as it sounds, if you know history and understand how marginal tax rates work. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to The David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. There's a new star in D.C., Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Socialist and Congresswoman from the Bronx, has been making headlines with practically every tweet. And tonight, she's on 60 Minutes discussing the potential for a 70% marginal tax rate on any wealth over $10 million. But what about Canada? Could something like this work here? Joining me to discuss that is Christo Avalis, a postdoctoral fellow in the history department at the University of Toronto with writing credits in Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Washington Post. Christo, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So heads explode oftentimes when, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of heads, heads explode when they hear 70% tax rate. But uh, I also think a lot of people don't quite grasp the idea of a progressive tax system. Um, so just a, as a, a jumping off point here for the conversation, can you just explain how marginal tax rates work? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I mean I'm not a, not a tax accountant by any means, but, but in broad terms, the way it works is that when you say 70%, at least in Ocasio-Cortez's case, she's saying 70% at $10 million, which is to say that you know, for every dollar you make above $10 million, the tax on that specific dollar will be 70%. It will not equal 70% on a person's entire income. So the way it works is that, you know, just as a hypothetical, you know, the lowest bracket tax rates would be X. And then once you cross into a new threshold, um, your income is taxed at a new level. It's designed like this um, because it helps you implement a, a progressive tax system. And it also prevents a, a 
you know, a case of, you know, if you made more money, you could somehow, you know, pay more in taxes than, than mm-hmm. you know, than you, than you would have earned. Uh, so this kind of system, um, you know, allows for a progressive uh, taxation rate and, and doesn't punish you for earn, ever earning an extra dollar in that sense. Uh, and that's generally how these systems work. Yeah, so people have to understand that. Like, if you're listening at home, understand that when we talk about uh, higher tax rates on, on the wealthiest, we're talking about a system that really would not impact you if you aren't making over a certain amount. And in, in, in fact, in many ways would benefit you because there's now more, more tax revenue coming into the system. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, historically, uh, how uh, exactly would uh, a 70% marginal tax rate, uh, like, in, in Canada's history? So as Canadians, have we seen anything like that here? And is there potential for that to, uh, to happen? You know, yeah, certain tax rates were higher in the past. Um, I don't know if we ever quite reached the heights of the United States where at some points in history, the top marginal tax rate was above 90 percent. Mm-hmm. But, but the reality and the reality is often that even in that time period, the wealthy have various means of, 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 of legal means and, and, and sometimes illegal means of, 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 of skirting their tax obligations. Um, so you know, did did rich people ever really ever pay in the United States, even in say under say Eisenhower in the fifties, uh, pay ninety one percent on their last third dollar? We don't know necessarily for sure. I'd have to look at you know mm-hmm. studies that have shown like the accounting techniques of the time. Yeah. But the reality was that tax rates were much much higher uh, during the kind of so called good old days, um, and that coincided at least in Canada and the United States with. Uh, you know, uh, 20 of the most kind of 20, 25 of the most prosperous years in, in not just our history, but in, in humanity's history. And I yeah. think that it goes to show that um, innovation and growth and equality and democracy were, were not enhanced by, but in many ways were, were bolstered by, you know, a very high tax rate on the, 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 the last earned dollars of, of the very wealthiest. Yeah. So it, just to detail what you were saying there about the uh, the American tax rate. So in the 1950s, uh, under Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the, tar- the top marginal tax rate was 91 percent during the eight years of his presidency on individuals making uh, $200,000 or more, which in modern day figures, that's about $1.7 million. So um, again, but as you were saying, there were, you know, various loopholes where people could get a- around that sort of uh, that sort of, you know, 91 percent. But um what I really want to get down to here is there is an opportunity, I think, for a party, more likely the, the NDP, to maybe potentially do something about this. So what are your thoughts in terms of what the liberals have done and uh, maybe the potential for an opening for the NDP to, to do something here with tax reform? Well, you know, the liberals in the last election did a few modest things. They, they you know, uh, made slight increases to... Uh, the top marginal brackets, um, and they, you know, they offset that a bit by offering certain cuts to um, not to any of the the regular. Can they? They kind of raised the taxes a bit on the one percent and lowered them on the 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 ten percent, if you will. Seventy five percent of Canadians did not see a tax cut under the Trudeau government. Now they'll argue that the, the you know the child care benefit um, offsets that, but but uh, that's that's another debate. Um, they didn't really do much. There were some indications that they were going to deal with some of the, the techniques that uh, relatively well-off people, uh, re- professionals like medical doctors and things like that, used to 
uh, sprinkle their income, and they faced a lot of pushback like that within and outside their party, and they largely backed off on those things. Um, in many ways, they haven't really done much. Um, mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that there's a few factors here. One, there's really three or four main kinds of taxes we have to look at. One, there's the big one people talk about a lot is income tax. And that's what Ocasio-Cortez is talking about here. Mm -hmm. That's where, you know, you make X amount of money, uh, and then at the end of the year, you pay X amount of tax, and, you know, that's, that's your tax bill as an individual. But there's also corporate taxes, which businesses pay, you know, incorporated companies pay. Uh, there's, there, that, there's that level of tax, which can be raised and, and lowered. There's also the capital gains tax, which is, you know, taxes paid on when you sell goods or things like that or, or, or sell a home or sell stocks. Uh, if it's not your primary family home, uh, you know, you, and you make a profit off that, you're taxed on the profit. Um, and finally, there are things like estate taxes. And mm -hmm. in Canada, our, our, we don't have an estate tax. So it really – where there's no kind of um, tool to, to kind of mitigate intergenerational wealth transfers in that sense. And in Canada – our capital gains are taxed, but only at 50% the rate income is. Put it another way, if I was to sell a bunch of stocks and make $100,000, and then I was to go and work to earn $100,000, let's say as an accountant or as a doctor or as a construction worker or what have you, mm -hmm. the reality is I'd pay a much higher tax rate on my labor income than on my, my investment income, and that's how our system works. So the NDP, to its credit, at least under Jagmeet Singh's leadership race, and this was also brought up by Nikki Ashton as well, was that they wanted to kind of approach it on four broad fronts. One was, you know, a, a, a increase to the uh, income tax rate, although not to the level Ocasio-Cortez was suggesting, uh, a 4% increase on the top bracket and a 2% increase on the second highest bracket. Um, and, and then also uh, uh, increasing the capital gains inclusion rate from, 20, from 50 to 75%, um, meaning that there would be a big... Um, you know, increase into uh, to capital gains to try to bring it more in line with labor income. And then seeing perhaps most, I guess, radical, most ambitious would be to look at a, uh, at a 40 percent estate tax on any estate worth $4 million or more where the pr primary family home is exempted from that $4 million calculation. Mm. Those were the four big tax programs yet. Add to that a 4% a, a increase to the corporate tax rate. And that was his program during the leadership. Yeah, and just to, uh, as an aside here, I think there's also a, a social benefit of uh, taxing inherited wealth because th this this intergenerational wealth, oftentimes what it does, it, it sets sets your children up. So say you're you know you're a wealthy Canadian, say you're I don't know you you have over twenty million dollars. Oftentimes, what it does it is it it sets your children up to not be as connected to society and what life is like for the average person as say. Uh, someone who was born into a family that that has experienced uh, poverty, or not not even just poverty, but has experienced at least you know middle class a middle class life. So having this this intergenerational wealth and you not really having to face the the financial challenges that many people have to face, I think benefits society uh, on a social level because it makes people more aware and more empathetic of the struggles that others are are going through. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a great yeah. point. And I think, but, and then to add to that, it also, you know, uh, high levels of intergenerational wealth, I think they clash against what supposedly is one of Canada and the United States' fundamental values, which is the equality of opportunity. And now the reality is, is that doesn't necessarily mean we need to ensure that everyone is absolutely equal from birth, but it does mean to say that if you have a child who's born to undocumented immigrants, 
and you have a child that's born to millionaires or even less stark an example. You have a child born, you know, in a rural, uh, depressed community that's recently lost this industry, and you have a child born to a family whose parent who has who for generations have worked at you know the biggest economic institutions of the country. The reality is is that 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 wealth, especially that's passed down from generation to generation, entrenches. Uh, inequality of opportunity, and mm-hmm. if people truly are born created equal, you know the idea that there, there is no entrenched class in Canada and the United States that those old European institutions of of noblesse and all of those things that from birth mark somebody as better than one another, but in reality we have those systems here, and they pass down through wealth. Mm-hmm. And the reality is is that without some kind of of wealth taxation. You do not have anything approaching equality of opportunity in this country, and I think that's a discussion we need to have. This is not purely an economic discussion. It's largely an economic discussion when we talk about taxes, but it's also a question of values we have as a society. Mm-hmm. If one of those values is equality, then inequality of wealth uh, is, is, is incompatible with that, and it's also incompatible with opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly right. Also, uh, so... I think the biggest barrier to policy like this is the the popularity or maybe the lack of uh, popularity of the idea of raising taxes. I think it's politicians and, and, and parties have had a hard time trying to communicate the idea of uh, of raising taxes and do it in a way where people don't automatically feel, oh, I don't want my taxes raised. Like the, there is a, a way to properly communicate this. Uh, in terms of, uh, I'm not sure if you know um, of the popularity of, of raising taxes, but what are your thoughts? Do you think people are are ready to hear a message like that? Do you think that will that will con- uh, connect with people? Say that if the NDP does adopt this sort of uh, this sort of tax reform, I mean, my inkling is that if you can sell it correctly, and the reality of the NDP especially, and this was one of the mistakes in 2015, was that they tried to be a party of of all the percents. Of the 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 99 percent and everyone they they tried to say look we're not we're, we are going to raise taxes on corporations and things like that but mm-hmm. we're not going to soak the rich but the reality is is that um, you know the rich are never going to vote for the NDP there might be some academics who make good salaries who might vote for the NDP but the party on the whole will not vote for the NDP they yeah. just won't do it and I think the party needs to realize in a sense is that we do need to soak the rich we need to soak the rich because it's part of funding the programs we need. It's part about building the equality of society we want. And I think the reality with taxes, and selfish as it is, I think that people like the idea of taxes being raised when it's not their taxes being raised. Yeah. And I think that you know, while we can have a discussion, I think, about say, the top 10% of income earners, there's been research in the United States that have shown that you know, the 99% versus the 1% is a valid category of analysis. But in mm-hmm. some cases, it's the 90 versus the 10. Mm-hmm. And that top 10% is... is in, in certain parts of the United States through private education and through connections that maybe don't make your children wealthy. You're not passing on billions, but you are passing on $2 million homes in, in certain cities and things like that. Um, you know, that, that, that's kind of creating this discussion. But I think that if you can sell the plan as raising taxes predominantly on the wealthy and predominantly on, on groups that, that generally don't poll well with the target voters you're having, that's where you do it politically. And that doesn't sound very idealistic. It's a very kind of real politique. This is why, for instance, we have differentiation, differentiated tax rates between small and big business. 
Now, as a, as a scholar, I could probably say that that distinction really shouldn't exist. A capitalist is a capitalist. Mm-hmm. But the po- politics of it is that when you want to raise corporate taxes, you almost have to, by default, make sure that it's not perceived as going after any mom-and-pop business. Yes, exactly. Right? Even, if that business even, even if that business really isn't mom-and-pop, or even if mom-and-pops probably could pay a bit more in taxes, the reality is mom-and-pops are popular, right? Yeah. So much like you have to be careful with that. My, my inkling is that certainly if you went to people and said, look, we're going to tax the top 5 or top 1% of incomes more, we're going to uh, address the fact that uh, somebody who could flip houses or flip stocks get, pays less tax than somebody through the sweat of their brow earns their labor, mm-hmm. I think Canadians would be receptive to that message. The problem is, and this is historically the problem, is that back in the 60s, there was a plan, uh, somebody named uh, uh, Carter, he was a, a, an accountant basically tasked by the Liberal government at the time to do a, a review of the tax system. And one of the things he suggested is whether you earn money through investing or through labor, your income should be taxed uh, equally, a buck is a buck. Now, that was popular with the NDP at the time, but very unpopular with the Liberals and Conservatives. And the reality was is that mobilization of the forces that would be affected by it was was immense. And we saw that with the, the doctors and with a lot of the other professionals when the liberals uh, used about cutting down income sprinkling. And that will be the challenge of the left, is that for all the talk about class warfare in our society, there's no class that has consciousness like the, like the capitalist class, right? Yeah, exactly. And so when you go and you try to raise taxes, even if it's on those wealthy, their goal will be um, to try to paint that as an attack on small business, yep. to try to paint that as an attack on your local family doctor, mm-hmm. to try to paint that as an attack on the innovators and the, and, the, and the successful people in our society. And I think that's the less challenge is putting forward a message that you know fair taxation, which is, which is, is essential to democracy and equality and opportunity, and that the elite's whining, frankly, needs to be ignored and we need to push forward with our vision. That's the challenge. Yep, exactly. And uh, just before we uh, I wrap up here, uh, I want to mention that. So I haven't seen polling on the popularity of raising taxes in Canada, but I have seen in the U.S. And when you poll people on do you want to raise taxes on the wealthiest and on large like multinational corporations, it polls very high. So from a base level, I mean, we're working from from a starting point where people uh, I think are maybe a little more informed on this than than we would otherwise believe, and they do want to see higher taxes on on the wealthy and on on large corporations. But uh, Christo Avelis uh, is a postdoctoral fellow in the history department at the University of Toronto, with writing credits in Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Washington Post. Christo, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, 2019 predictions, including what I think will happen in the 2019 federal election. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Monday, October 21st, 2019. Mark it down. That is the 43rd Canadian federal election, where we're going to be seeing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party go up against Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and, of course, his party, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Now, there is—when it comes to predictions, 
it's hard, sometimes hard to separate what you want to happen versus what you think will happen. So I'm going to try to make that distinction now. So let me first tell you what I want to happen. I would love to see an NDP majority. I would love it. It'd be fantastic. It's not going to happen. It's at least, I mean, there would, a lot would have to happen in the meantime for that to take place. And I just do not see that happening. I mean, everything would have to go right for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP to be able to form a majority government next year. What I think will happen, though, is I think Trudeau is going to retain his government. Now, whether it's a minority government or a majority government, I mean, I guess I can make the prediction and, and take a guess here, but it would, be, it would just be a, a shot in the dark. I think he uh, will maintain a majority government, but I could be wrong. It could be a minority. But this is why I feel this way. The, <laughs> the opposition, Andrew Scheer and his conservatives, Andrew Scheer, most people, first of all, don't even know who Andrew Scheer is yet. And that's normal. I mean, most Canadians don't really pay attention to politics and, until an election is actually happening. But people are, people are going to be surprised that if you don't know who Andrew Scheer is yet, and if you're listening to this, this station, I'm guessing you already do. But if you don't know who Andrew Scheer is, he is incredibly uncharismatic. He is shallow on ideas. He essentially wants to continue protecting the wealthy and large corporations and pretending that he's working for, you know, the average Joe and the, the small business owner. The same song and dance the conservatives always do. But it would be one thing if the conservative leader was somebody interesting, somebody charming, somebody that had some ideas. But it's not. Andrew Scheer is boring. And at least so far, all he has done has been the anti-Trudeau guy. Now, it's fine. I understand. You know, when you're in the opposition, you have to sort of take that, that position. But take that position with some substance. I mean, he has gone after Trudeau for every little thing. And look, I am not a Trudeau guy. I did not vote for Trudeau. In fact, I ran as a Green Party uh, a candidate in, in 2015. So if anything, I should be pushing for a Green Party majority. But again, I have to at least have some, <laughs> some semblance of reality in my predictions. Um, but look, uh, Sheard is just boring, and people are going to see that come come next, or I should say, come this year. Um, that said, uh, Trudeau himself is incredibly flawed. So we're talking about you know broken promises, like on electoral reform. He hasn't been bold on climate policy. He's also been corporate friendly. I think he has the potential to lose a lot of his progressive support to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP if the NDP and Jagmeet Singh uh, step up their game and, and actually push a, a bold agenda out there to attract those people. But again, my prediction for 2019 is a liberal majority with Justin Trudeau still retaining his spot as Canadian Prime Minister. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, and visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.